this uh, Willow chick all time world's worst fiance or what? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if I would uh, rather my fiance sort of like go bang a bunch of other dudes or set me up to be murdered in a ritual sacrifice. But what if she did both? That's what I'm saying. This is why I think she's worse. <laughs> did she do the like the first thing? I don't think she was banging a bunch of other dudes. I don't know. I thought they alluded to that, but then maybe that's because they didn't know that the daughter was his. We're spoiling this whole fucking movie <laughs> in the first 30 seconds. Welcome to Bad Movies and Beer. <laughs> yes, this is what we do here. I'm Cooper. I'm Nolan. Welcome to the first season finale, by the way, if this is your first one. Uh, what a great way to join us on the final episode. Yeah, if you're deciding to work backwards, start at the end and work towards <laughs> the beginning. So We're glad to have you. Absolutely. And what a way for us to end our first season by discussing... Just a classic Nicolas Cage bad movie here. It's a remake, which is strike one. It stars Nick Cage, which is strikes two, three, and four. It's just, you know. <laughs> I mean, we can't go wrong choosing a Nick Cage movie here. In a, in a podcast about watching bad movies and drinking good beer, Like Nick Cage has got to be one of our easy go-tos. Oh, love getting in the cage. So, yes, as you mentioned, we talk about bad movies. We drink some delicious beer. And today, we are discussing The Wicker Man. And the beer we are enjoying today, do you want to tell everyone about the beer that we're enjoying today? Yeah, this is uh, called Smoked Honey by Royal City Brewing in Guelph, Ontario. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I swear that in this movie, they, they make honey on this island, which is an easy connection there. The smoke part, when you get to the end of this movie, there's a lot of smoke. But I swear that at one point they refer to the honey they make as royal honey. They definitely do refer to the royal honey. Uh, one thing we learn going through this movie is that this sort of commune of individuals are actually living like bees. So yes, they call it the royal honey, and they say that Nick Cage isn't worthy to drink it. Hopefully we're worthy to drink this smoked honey here from Royal City. I'm looking forward to it. It is our third, I think, brown ale of the season. We've had a lot of honey brown action in the yeah. last uh, couple months, yeah. <laughs> we just keep going back to this. Uh, I think, as we've said before, they're really, really drinkable, and I'm looking forward to We're going to sort of tell you about it as we get to the end, so I'm excited for this one. This is a pretty good connection, I feel. I know you were upset because at one point in the movie, they served mead in this tavern, and you were like, why weren't we drinking mead? And I was like, there's still there's like three things to connect here. Give me a break. <laughs> I like the connection. You've done a good job pairing this. If, you're, if this is your first episode, we always pair a theme from the beer to the movie we're watching, and and Cooper's done a good job here. I was a little bit grumpy with him. I thought maybe if I knew the movie had mead in it, I think mead would have been a fun connection for us. We haven't drank any mead before. They mentioned it for like two seconds. It's not even a thing. He it's just... made from honey, and the whole island is about bees. The beer is called Royal City Smoked Honey. It's got like three of the fucking words in it. <laughs> it's perfect. Let's open it up and see uh, how it tastes. I agree. Let's do it. The can says it should be enjoyed with barbecue, hard, or smoked cheese, or soft fruit. Okay. Where does it stand on enjoying with a man being burned alive in a giant fucking <laughs> wicker statue? I mean, that sounds like barbecue to me. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. It's fair. So, you know, not off the mark. So we open on, it's kind of like a country town. Um, there's some very dramatic music playing, which does not really fit the idyllic setting. And we see kind of a small town diner. There's two motorcycle cops there, one of whom, Edward Malice, played by Nicolas Cage, ordered a salad, which they kind of make a little bit of a deal about. We get some quick scenes of him at work. He's uh, riding his motorcycle, ticketing people. And then we get kind of like a sweet moment when a child throws a doll out the window and a Nick Cage on his motorcycle, without stopping, scoops down and grabs it. Yeah, this is a good action moment for Nick Cage, right? You can see his motorcycle riding skills. He, he grabs that doll first time and goes to deliver it to this mom and daughter. And uh, what is the family's reaction to this? The uh, mom is very, you know, grateful for him for doing this. And the daughter sort of seems that way. But then the daughter starts, like, fucking with him. She just, like, throws it out the window again after he gives it to her. And he's like, oh, that's all right. I can't really do a good Nick Cage. He's just like, <laughs> he kind of, like, laughs it off. You know, it's a child just being childish. And so he goes to pick it up again. And as soon as he does, a giant semi-truck just smashes into their station wagon. We were just fucking right into this. Came out of nowhere. Yeah, so the mood starts out really dark with that music. And you know that this is going to be kind of a thriller-ish movie. But very quickly, it gets dark with that child and mother getting smashed by the truck. And Nick Cage tries to be the hero who runs in, break the window to get them out. But as he's trying to do that... Well, the little girl is just staring at him creepily. And he's like, give me your hand, give me your hand. She just like looks at him, doesn't move. And then the car explodes, which, like, he rolls out of there, but his face should have been gone. He's just, like, fine. He's just, like, a little scuffed up, like... Yeah, that was strange, right? It was strange, one, that he wasn't burned to death. It was strange that he had this weird interaction with the kid. 
But even stranger still is we find out shortly after that neither the girl, the body of the mother or the child were found in the vehicle. Yeah, we find out that the the bodies were never found when he gets a visit from a police officer friend of hers. Uh, she comes to visit, check on him, kind of. We see him kind of like at home recovering at this point. He's popping some pills, and uh, that's going to be kind of a recurring thing as we go through this movie. Not only uh, they could not find the bodies, but the car wasn't even registered, so it's a mystery. Now, also mysterious, he gets a letter from his ex-fiance, which tells him, A, that she has a daughter, who, B, is missing, and C, looks a lot like the creepy girl from the station wagon. Yeah, it's really weird. We were having a hard time deciding whether it was the same person. I think in the end we decided it wasn't, but it was really difficult to tell. Yeah, well, you know who else can't tell is fucking Nick Cage. He, uh, <laughs> she asked him to come investigate, and you know, in the course of his investigation, he's going to see like 18 different fucking people that look like this little girl. Uh, that all comes later, of course. Before he decides to take her up on it, he shows this letter to his partner at the station who says, Wow, the plot thickens. Didn't even know you had a plot. No kidding. So we get the impression that Nick Cage is kind of like just some fucking milk toast uh, ordinary dude. Yeah, all he does is do his police job. There's no sort of background. He has no relationships, no other things going on. I mean, he is ordering salad in the diner and also not verbally responding when she's like, your salad's ready. He kind of looks at her and smiles and waves while he's looking at like self-help tapes. Yeah, he was staring at his self-help <laughs> Everything's going to be okay. That's That's the title of this. And it is not, for the record. Oh my those, gosh. those tapes lied no. to him. That was a lot of foreboding right there. In this scene with his partner, I can't tell if it's the acting or the dialogue that's dragging this down, but it's definitely something. Like It's, it's both. This is going to be a bold statement, but I think his partner is a worse actor than Nicolas Cage. The, the, the things that the partner says come off even worse than Cage's like general overacting. So I have a theory about this, and my theory is that if you know there's issues with like your main actor, you bring in someone worse on purpose to make them look better by comparison. Because in this scene, I'm like, oh, maybe Nick Cage isn't that bad. <laughs> I do agree with you, and I, I think that that's fair. I think there's a couple other performances in this movie that kind of outshine him. Um, but in general, the acting around him was awful to, I guess, make him look better. Very possible. Uh, either way, he decides he's going to go to it, where this girl's missing is a privately owned island in the Pacific Northwest, which is weird. And what else is weird is on the way there, he's seeing people that look like the girl from the car all over the place. And, you know, he's also popping a lot of pills, as I mentioned. So I'm kind of like, is this all just in his head? Is he just imagining all of this? We're getting a lot of hallucinations in this movie, a lot of kind of flashback hallucinations. And it's hard for me to tell whether that is like just happening in his head or happening as a part of the story. It's the pill. He's popping those pills like candy. He's like Tiger Woods out there. He does need to stop. And I wonder at some point in this movie how he didn't run out because the amount that he popped, he had sort of a lifetime supply on him, it felt like. Yeah, for real. Um, in order to get to this island, he's going to have to find someone who can get him there because they're not exactly running charters. He finds a pilot who makes deliveries, but the pilot is very hesitant. You can tell something's up because the pilot is does not want to take him. It's not until Nick Cage bribes him that he agrees even then, he drops him off on the beach, and Nick Cage has to hike, like, several miles to get to this village, which he is not dressed for. He's wearing, like, <laughs> slacks and, like, one of those, like, teacher blazers with the leather fucking elbow things. It's hilarious. The fact that he knows he's going to this sort of remote island, he knows that there's a strange community on there that's private and probably won't want him there. And yet, yes, he doesn't bring a lot of stuff. He has like almost nothing with him. You're right. It's a good depiction of a like early starting teacher with the tie and the the sort of wool jacket with the leather patches. He's fucking welcome back, Cotter. That's what he's using. Yeah. <laughs> and so he goes for a big hike and then ends up sort of where the plane landed, uh, where people are sort of pulling stuff off the dock and he runs into some townsfolk. Oh, and they are not happy to see him. They're also very unhappy that the pilot dropped him off. They pieced that together quickly, and we're going to see what happens to that guy later on. But strangely, it's uh, three older women he's talking to. While they are very upset that he's there, they don't seem very concerned about the missing child. In fact, uh, the three women say that the child definitely wasn't from the island without even looking at the photo that he's got. Yeah, he's getting a very cold response from this island, and you're getting vibes very quickly that this is a very closed and isolated place and one that doesn't like outsiders. And yet, Nick goes, like, real aggressive on the way that he tries to deal with these people. He is in charge, or he likes to think he is, because he goes on the offensive. 
Yeah, and yet they don't really take him seriously. In fact, they laugh at him in the scene because he's uh, startled by a moving bag that is just like dripping blood. Imagine, imagine being startled by that. <laughs> and it's weird. I wish they showed us what was in it because uh, they were like hinting at something gruesome and they didn't and I wanted to know. So now about that, I wonder... We should preface this. There is more than one version of this movie. So, like, there is the theatrical version, which is the one that we watched until the ending when we switched over to the shocking alternate ending because that's the one that has, like, some of the famous things that were made into memes. Ah, the bees, yes. And it was weird watching it the first time and that not popping up at all. And that's where we went to that, uh, the sort of alternate ending. And you're right, maybe some of the scenes where they tone back the gore or violence were part of the sort of theatrical cut, and that could be true, because that's what it seemed like the change was to the other ending. Yeah, I'm wondering if they, they do show what's in the bag in the alternate version, although the version promises a shocking alternate ending, not a shocking alternate, like, seventh minute where he, I don't know, <laughs> so who knows, but I did have that question. Um, these women do, however, know the woman who wrote the letter. That is Sister Willow, and that is, of course, his ex fiance. Now, he finds Sister Willow at the local tavern when he also gives an I'm in charge here speech like you were talking about to everyone there, uh, which he emphasizes by killing a bee on the bar counter. And this gets everyone's attention. Yeah, this did not go over well. Um, We find out very shortly or we learn that those bees are super important to the island. In fact, it's sort of one of their main ways of sustaining a living. I think their only way. Yeah, and yet we also find out quite sort of ironically almost that Nick Cage's character is allergic to bees. Yeah, that is really bad luck for him, being on this island just full of bees. Uh, He has a conversation later on with his fiance. He asks why she left him. You know, where's the dad of this daughter? Why didn't she ask the dad for help? Uh, She says he's the only one she trusts. Then suddenly a bell rings and she has to just go right away. Yeah, clear that there is sort of a lot of control on the behavior and action in the people in this island. And we start hearing about a sort of mother character, Mother Summerside. Sister Summer Isle. Sister Summer Isle, who uh, is the sort of leader of this group of mostly women so far that are running this community on this island. Oh, they're running the show. Nick Cage actually eavesdrops on a little bit of like a, a meeting with some of like the higher ups. Now, Sister Summer Isle is not there, but who is there is two creepy old twins who talk at the exact same time, which, my God, that's horrifying. It was, and they both had cataracts covering their eyes, so they looked blind or sort of possessed at the same time. Those were extremely freaky characters. Yeah, now we gather from what he hears in this little meeting that they are preparing for tomorrow, which is going to be the day of death, the return of the Wicker Man. So as I'm hearing this, is it possible this whole movie takes place in like 24 hours? Is that why he never changes? It feels like he was there for like a week and a half. He gets an awful lot done in one day. I do agree with you. He is all over the place. Um, I mean, he's very motivated. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he only runs at one speed. Nick Cage is full throttle <laughs> the entire time. But I think you're right. I think this whole movie takes place in the period of like 36 hours. My God. You know, he uh, he overhears all this talking. He also discovers that his bags may have been kind of rifled through. He thinks he's missing one or two things while he was out talking to his ex. Luckily, they left his EpiPens, though. So thank goodness for that. Yeah, this is weird. They took his self-help tapes, but if they don't really want him there, why aren't they getting rid of his EpiPens? Oh, but we find out later. They need to keep him alive. (laughs) We do. So after a little dream sequence where we get the impression that maybe he's not totally sure if there actually was anyone in the station wagon, he wakes up to take more pills. Then he looks out the window and sees a little girl. Now he runs out to try and talk to her, follows her into like a creepy old barn. He finds like a little Red Riding Hood kind of cloak in there, but no girl. He's about to leave when all of a sudden the floor gives way and he almost falls. And I'm like, was this a trap? Are they seeing a trap for him? Yeah, it's really strange. I feel like there's these scenes in this movie that are really just to create mood. They don't really push the plot in any way. And this is definitely one of them. There was almost like a weird spirity, creepy ghost music that leads him into the woods. And then also that same sound when he falls through the boards. Yet, we never really get a creepy ghost or spirit as a part of the plot. If we're talking about padding, I don't know that they're just padding for time, but I think they're padding for mood. Yeah, there's definitely uh, sound effects for sure. A lot of a lot of sounds that are never really explained. And again, I'm, I'm forced to wonder if this is all in his head because, again, we just see him go back to those pills so often. At breakfast the next day, he notices they have store-bought honey. 
despite the fact that they make their own on the island. Now, one of the sisters who's working there, a young girl played by Lily Sobieski, tells him that the crop was cursed last year, so there was no honey. Nick Cage checks out some pictures of the Harvest Festival. Every year, there's like a Harvest Queen or like a princess. It's one of the young girls on the island. And he happens to notice that last year's picture is not there. Apparently, it was mysterious. It happened to be broken just recently. Yeah, I'm starting to connect here that clearly Rowan, right, the child who's missing, is probably the last year's Harvest Queen. And that probably doesn't bode well. As Nick is trying to find this missing child, I feel like this kid is actually in danger. I'm actually kind of rooting for Nick to find this kid and like pull this out. I'm like, he's going to figure this out here. Yeah, they're getting they're doing a good job of establishing conspiracy vibes. Now, this is again, at this point in the movie, we're still pretty close to what happens in the original. It starts to branch off in some ways. And like I'll tell you right now, the guy in the main one, there are no bees in the first one. So that's different. But like in terms of establishing something's up on this island, they're doing a good job of that. But they're also kind of following the blueprint of that first movie. So there's no bees in the first one? No bees. Really? Yep. And the island is not like run mainly by women. Christopher Lee is the main guy on the island, and he's, of course, male. So, yeah. Okay. That's interesting because I did a quick look up at this, and the this one, the Nick Cage one, is actually supposed to be closer to the source material. Oh, because it's based on a book, right? Yeah. yeah. It's supposed to follow more closely the things that happened in the book. And I don't know, maybe that was just timeline. Maybe in the 70s, they didn't think a like female-led commune would be more interesting. But um, I think they, they went with that choice here, which was interesting. They did, but we also get the impression that maybe not everyone on the island wants to be there because this same sister who explained to him about the crop asks him to take her with him when he leaves. I was kind of like, is she propositioning him here? Is this like a, like a sexual thing? I'm not sure if she's offering that. It didn't seem like she was coming on to him. She touched his arm. She, she put her hand on his arm, arm, which is sort of like a flirty move. But I think that was more of like, help get me out of here kind of move. I mean, she does help him by pointing him in the direction of the school. And that's where he heads, where he gets a very frosty reception from the teacher. Now, he asks some questions, but nobody seems to know the missing girl. However, he notices an empty desk in the room, and when he opens it, a crow flies out. This was a definite what-the-fuck moment. The crow flies out, and they he's sort of Nick Cage-esque upset and asks what the fuck a crow was doing in there. And they say the kids wanted to put it in there to see how long it would survive. What kind of fucking science are these kids learning in this school? It's pretty fucked up. It seems like an interesting school. It's a it's a one room schoolhouse, right? We have the sort of school marm. Everyone has their own desk and writing utensil. It's bringing us back very much to sort of the turn of the century historical schools. Yeah, he uh, he knows probably based on that. There's got to be some kind of an attendance log. So he goes looking for that. He grabs it out of the teacher's desk and finds the missing girl's name. Rowan's name is crossed out. And when this happens, he immediately chides the children. He just says, You little liars. Rowan Woodward is your classmate, isn't she? Isn't she? He just gets right <laughs> in the right face. Like, what is he doing? He was interrogating those kids hard. I mean, it was sort of classic Nick Cage. I think at one point I turned to you while we were watching this and asked, do you think the character in the story originally was always this angry or had to approach it that way? Or did they have to write it this way because that's the only way Nick Cage knows how to act? That's, that's a great fucking question. I don't know the answer like, to that. I really want to know. Somebody who has read the original story or knows sort of what its themes are, can you please respond to us and let me know? I mean, I will say in the original, the guy's pretty angry in the original also, but that just seems to be more him being like, like uncomfortable with sort of the free spirited nature because he's British in the first one. And of course the British are known for being kind of like proper and like, you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's interesting this one because this one takes place. Uh, it seems like in the early nineties, mid nineties, it kind of seems like that's when it's timed. And the people who live there are not like what you would consider communal hippies. They just seem like they have organized in a different way. They have strange relationships, right? In terms of men seem to only be there to help women procreate. And there seems to be something funny going on with male babies, right? They seem to be disappearing or maybe only raising them to be sort of laborers. Yeah, well, and the men never talk. And we see that very soon. They just are completely silent. Now, the teacher, when this happens, ends up taking him outside and explaining to him that, yes, the girl was there, but she's not anymore because she's dead. She burned to death, so case closed. No problem. <laughs> well, I guess in she explained in her community that when someone dies, they become a part of nature or the trees or the rest of things. So, that sounds pretty fucking hippie-ish to me. Yeah. You're saying they're not your <laughs> So maybe I was wrong about the commune thing. They definitely have some interesting interpretations. We learned that sort of they believe there is sort of a nature spirit and that 
the sister who's in charge of all of it is the sort of body of that. She kind of communicates from that nature spirit. It's it's an interesting sort of idea. While I was watching, I was wondering, I mean, most of our societies are organized in like created by men. And all of the sort of suggestions are that women-led societies should be much better, but this is not sort of what that's depicting. I feel like, in, but that, but that's their philosophy on the island. Like they are clearly railing against that. This is a mother nature, like a Gaia situation, right? Where it's you know, but I mean, you can judge for yourself the effectiveness as we get closer to the end. Either way, uh, he goes to the graveyard to investigate further, and on the way, he asks like a lady who I think she's farming for directions. And confuses her with the teacher he just spoke to. So I'm starting to think he's taking too many of those pills, man. Like, how could he? The teacher didn't fucking lap him <laughs> and get ahead of him on this trip. Like, there's no way. People looked very similar, but not right. The one who was sort of picking up sticks and farming and organizing a group looked much dirtier, had a different hairstyle, could not have been that teacher. I think in communal living, if communities have been around a long time, you're going to see lots of people who look pretty similar, and maybe that's what he's confused about. But I agree, those pills are definitely having. Why? Problems. Why would we see people that look so similar? Well, I'm saying that in the community that they're trying to create, there's probably not a large breeding pool oh i see what you're saying okay yeah so you know yeah there's probably not enough genetics to go around for them to look different and i think that also leads to some of the confusion about the child we see over and over again who looks like the kid that's missing that looks like rowan you could be right that's a good point so if he visited this island like two generations from now they'd be just all eyes and teeth (laughs) (laughs) they would need to figure out and add some more diverse genetics which does seem like based on the theatrical release they do try to do okay yeah well yeah we yep uh so when he gets to the graveyard his ex-fiance is there and she tells him that the child's body is not buried in the grave she believes the child is still alive and they've got her and they're going to hurt her. Now, apparently, Sister Summerisle is the culprit. She's the person in charge here. And uh, oh, also, in the like least shocking twist imaginable, it turns out that this girl is Nick Cage's daughter. Because of course she is. Yeah. You see this one coming. He clearly has a sense that maybe that that was his daughter, right? If you look at the pictures, it's the right kind of age. You kind of knew that was happening. Nick Cage has been going at like probably 98% trying to figure out this crime so far on the island. As soon as he finds his daughter, he is 110%, right? That extra 12% is there quickly. He It is. But now before that happens, he stares off into the distance in a very like dramatic scene. And you know what? It's hilarious. <laughs> But I feel like I feel like he's really trying in this movie, yeah. which makes it even more hilarious. Oh, <laughs> so and it's he's looking through the ruins of an old church. It's sort of framed by the like yeah. empty window, <laughs> and him trying to put on his thoughtful "I am a father" face is pretty amazing. It is now, as you mentioned, he's getting very serious. So he's asking more questions. He wants a picture of the girl, but it turns out that only one person on the island is allowed to take pictures. That's Doctor Moss. Also, he finds the words help me like scratched into the bottom of her desk at home. Now, as soon as he discovers this, he hears the plane approaching the island. So he goes to borrow its radio because he can't get any cell phone reception. But when he gets to the plane, there's seemingly no one there. There is, however, a strange sound coming from underneath the dock. And when he kind of looks down, he sees a drowned little girl. He springs into action, dives in, pulls her out. But it turns out he's just hallucinating again. He's really fucked up here. All of this is really getting to him. The pills are getting to him. Finding out that he's now a father. He never knew that he was. So he's got a five-year-old here. This is all adding up to too much for Nick Cage. Oh, yeah. He starts screaming, God damn it, at like the world when you realize he's hallucinating. But then he goes right back to the pills. Dude. Yeah. Stop taking those pills. Like This is really, really hurting your chances of figuring out and saving this child, who now you know is your daughter. Yeah, so uh, after swimming out to the plane and finding the radio is just fucking out of commission, he goes to visit this Dr. Moss who's allowed to take pictures, and she tells him that she's got another copy of the Harvest Festival picture, and she can have one printed up for him right away, no problem. Later on, though, he stakes out her house, and he sees her get summoned by, like, two people wearing beekeeper masks. This was really weird. Yeah, this was strange. So we start seeing, this is the first time we see these characters, but we see them more. They sort of guardians of the bees and the guardians of the bees. the guardians of the bees i'm calling them and their outfits remind me of kind of the cloaks and outfits 
from The Handmaid's Tale. Yep, that's uh, that's exactly what I thought of also. That are the fucking, uh, those red guards in like Empire Strikes Back? Yeah, they have the beekeeper head, but it's sort of tighter and red. And then they're also wearing red gloves. They're very sinister feeling. They do add to the mood of sort of the danger of the island. They do. So he sees an opportunity here and he breaks into her house to get more information. In there, he finds a book that explains some aspects of the Fertility Festival, which was alluded to earlier in the movie. He also finds some weird kind of like biology equipment or like samples or something. And he finds the negative of last year's Harvest Festival picture. And you'll never believe it, but last year's Harvest Queen... It's the missing girl, Rowan, you know, whatever the fuck her name is. Yeah, sort of what we thought based on all the clues they were giving us. They are not great about sort of hiding. They're kind of letting you know what's happening throughout. I was a little disappointed in myself that I didn't piece together the ending before getting three quarters through this movie. I thought, like, I should have figured it out sooner. They are leaving a very thick trail of breadcrumbs for sure, for Nick Cage and for the audience. <laughs> um So when he finds this, he confronts his ex and he wants to know why she didn't tell him. His theory is they're blaming the child for the bad harvest. So who knows what they would do to her, possibly even like a sacrifice. Now, uh, his fiance apologizes, he apologizes, and they share a tender kiss. This is one of those Nick Cage moments where... He starts yelling before there's any reason to yell. Like <laughs> he does so that so much quick in the movie. To scream at her, and you're just like, "Come on, like have a conversation." But no, it's a Nick Cage yell. This is another point where I'm like, they wrote this for Nick, right? Like they made the character yelly just so it could happen. And traditional Nick Cage is also really quick to apologize, and it happens here perfectly. Ends in a kiss, and you're like, maybe what's going to happen is the two of them are going to leave. They're going to get their daughter, and they're going to get off this island. I'm like, maybe they'll fly away in that plane. Well, that's what he's thinking, probably. You're right. And he goes from like zero to 100, but then he also goes from 100 to zero. He comes right back down to a quick <laughs> yeah. apology. So later on, he's walking with like a bike. And after a brief meeting with another man on this island who either won't or can't talk to him, he for somehow like walks this bike directly into a giant beehive. Now, now the, <laughs> like, he couldn't, he couldn't avoid it. <laughs> this was uh, so bad. So when he saves that man in a weird random thing, the man won't say anything to him. And then, for no reason, he doesn't notice a beehive, bumps into it, and instead of... A giant beehive. The beehive is fucking huge. It's like the size of a fucking chair. They're massive. This is a man with an anaphylactic bee allergy, and instead of, like, being cautious around a hive, he runs through a field of them. Well, that's the thing. If he had just turned around and gone back into the woods from whence he came, he probably would have been safe. But as the bees are swarming, he runs further into the bee field. So there's just more and more bees. It's like ridiculous. He gets stung several times and basically lays down to die. But he wakes up later on in the doctor's office and he is in like unbelievably good shape. Um, I was shocked at how good a shape he was in. Yeah. Like, he is feeling kind of great. He looks good. He's not swollen. You can't see signs of bee stings. And he asked the doctor if she gave him his EpiPen. And what does she say? No, she says no. She says she cured him in the old way. What the fuck does that mean? Um, I assume it means, like, cut off his dick. Like, <laughs> that was, I was like, maybe they just cut off his wiener and that solved all problems based on what's happening in this island i feel like it fit the sort of theme they fucking gelded him and that yeah. somehow stopped him from reduced the swelling from his fucking bees thing uh, maybe they impossible. fed it to him or tried <laughs> oh my know. god this has gotten ridiculous yeah. so uh, regardless of how she magically cured him it's time to meet sister summer isle now, when he meets her, she's generally pleasant to him, and she's okay with him carrying on his search, but he is, like, very condescending to her. They go for a walk, and she kind of gives him some of the island's history and philosophy, and he does not agree with it. I do not get this place. Oh, you will. In time, perhaps. Perhaps it is time for you to stop bullshitting me, okay? He's just so confrontational. What is he doing? It's really bad. In my notes, I wrote down that he was being condescending for no reason. She explains that they were sort of Celtic and they had left the islands of Europe and come over to the Americas. And then they'd been persecuted again in the Pennsylvania area during sort of the witch trials. And they moved out to this separate island. And their sort of beliefs hadn't been um, like considered okay. But he doesn't try to understand at all. He doesn't care He gets upset about the role of females being in charge and men not sort of having there. And he even screams at her a bunch and calls them wackos. This is where I really question if it was written for Cage because it seems like any reasonable writing of this character 
would try to understand and then have appropriate questions. But he was all one note aggressive. Or just like respect the fact that you're on an, like a privately owned island community. And as one of them points out, he's a California police officer. They're in Oregon. He doesn't even have jurisdiction. But he walks in like, I'm the fucking boss. It's so ridiculous. He keeps throwing down that he is going to be able to like arrest them or something's going to happen to them. And you're like... You're alone. You have no cell phone communication. There's no way off this island. Stop trying to sort of show your power. So even despite all of his aggression, she gives him permission to exhume the girl's grave, which he goes to do. But again, he thinks that she's like there. He hears or believes he hears a child kind of like whimpering. He enters this crypt, which is flooded and finds a floating shirt, a shirt floating in the water with the child's initials on the label. So he decides to swim down into this flooded crypt and investigate, but like a lid closes behind him, kind of like a he had to open like a hatch almost, and it closes, and now he's kind of trapped down there. So uh, basically, we see him there just hanging onto this lid and yelling for help, which who comes to help him out the next morning? So this part is really, really ridiculous. I know he was sort of hearing those sounds. We've been seeing a lot of cage hallucinations. It's all those pills he's popping, as we know. He goes down into the crypt. He breaks in. First of all, the crypt lock is open. So he doesn't even have to unlock it or something. So that's a bad sign. You know, I, I wrote on here, it's a trap. It's a trap. You're I was, making it real easy for him. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, you know, this isn't going to be good. So he goes in. He opens. He finds the sweater. He goes into the water and decides to swim down underwater to look for her. What's he going to do if the child is underwater at this point? She's been missing for days. She's clearly dead. Yeah. If there's no rescuing her if she's under there. Going in there is not going to solve anything. If she was on the edge of the water and he could pull her out, of course open it. But no, Nick decides to dive in and someone closes it. Willow comes and saves him, though. Very convenient. She shows up and pulls him out of there as he's in trouble. Yeah, now, after that happens, we get more Nick Cage shout acting where he tells her to go lock herself in the house because something bad is about to happen. He can feel it. Because his instincts have been so good so far. Yeah. Yeah. And this is about the time in the movie where I'm like, Nick is fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Right? This is about where I called it. I was like, oh my goodness, this whole thing is a ruse. Right? Like, you can see that things are happening where this shouldn't have happened. He shouldn't have been saved from here. If If they actually wanted him dead, he would have been dead several times. They're making efforts to save him and keep him alive. And there's a purpose to that. And it's coming soon. For sure. So he goes to confront Sister Summerisle with this new information he thinks he has, but doesn't find her. Instead, he finds a seemingly dead, like, one-eyed guy in her bed covered in welts. And also <laughs> uh, a girl sitting in a chair with just bees crawling all over her. This is so fucking weird. This was a strange tone for the movie, I found. This weird... It got really sort of sci-fi or fantasy horror at this point, And it didn't fit with the rest of the mood of the movie. My interpretation of the guy was this was kind of the lover or the thing that the the sort of leader used or she used him. The girl with the bees on, I didn't understand, though. I mean, again, I just assume most of this is happening in his head because he's fucking popping these pills like candy. He gets out of there and then he finds Sister Rose, the teacher from earlier. Uh, she's wearing a crow mask because she's preparing for the celebration, which is a, a time of death and rebirth. He steals her bike, which I'm like, was that his bike from before? Is this like a city bike situation where they can just fucking exchange bikes whenever they want? It seems like it. They didn't explain how he got the bike on the first one. So I assume he sort of shared his credit card and like put it into the machine and then borrowed it and was going to return it to the next spot. He used his gun. He pulled his gun on her to get it back. She was, I kind of like the teacher character. She was really giving it to him in both situations. And I like the way that she stood up to him. I mean, I want Nick to save his child if if that's what's going to happen, but I'm starting to turn or I'm starting to realize that that's not what is supposed to meant or what is meant to happen in this movie. No, he hasn't realized it yet though because he goes to like the tavern and tries to rally all the men in the village to help him, but they are all silent and or like not all there mentally, so they just look at him and look back at their drinks and he just fucking moves on. Now, the next step of his plan is to barge into random houses and shout at kids who are wearing masks. Yeah, this is fucked up. Yeah, it's really weird. He starts ripping masks off all these children. He threatens a family. He he screams no, and then he also, like, drops the F-bomb on them and tells them they're going to be charged with murder, basically. Amazingly, when this doesn't produce results, he runs to the beach, and that's where we find the pilot from earlier, the one who flew him to the island. That dude is all kinds of dead. His eyes are gouged out, and they've sewn his mouth shut. 
Yeah, at this point, Nick should have been like, oh my god, I'm in trouble. But really, he's like, I he is so focused on trying to figure out and save this that he's not willing to try to exit at this point. He's pretty rattled, though, because he stumbles back to, like, the tavern. And when he gets there, the tavern owner, the woman from earlier, basically tells him he looks like shit. So he punches her in the face. This begins this stretch of where Nick Cage is just punching women like it's his job. <laughs> yeah, um... I'm a little ashamed at how much I laughed at that part of the movie. Um, I actually really liked the sort of the woman who ran the tavern or the motel. I liked the way that she acted and performed her role. I thought she was one of the characters who was better than Nick Cage in their performances. Uh, the punch surprised me, though. And I think sometimes in a movie when you get that surprise um, action, that's what happened to me. And it, it really shocked me. Yeah, but that, again, that's the first of many because he just goes on a spree now. So he goes to steal this woman's costume for the festival so he can sneak in. But the girl from earlier who asked him to take her with him attacks him and to just, he ends up fucking karate kicking her into like a fucking picture wall, like the wall with all the pictures on it. Oh my goodness, this kick is aggressive and amazing. I I think this, this was probably the biggest blow up laugh I had in the entire movie. It was hilarious. And to be clear, not like the violence against women, but the fact that he broke out a karate kick to dispatch like a 16 year old girl, like it is so strange. It, it made no sense and was absurd and hilarious. Big time. So it works though. He's, he's knocked them both out. So he takes the costume sneaks into the festival and there he finally sees the missing girl rowan she's tied to a stake and after punching another woman which because he's wearing a bear costume looks hilarious looks like the bear is like <laughs> that, that may be the other explosion oh, so had. fucking funny anytime you see someone in a bear costume punching people out regardless of gender is going to be ridiculous right and that yeah. was one of those laughs, right we, we violence against women is like, unequivocally not okay. This movie was laughable. He sucker punches her. He fucking bear mauls this woman, unties the girl, and they escape into the woods. Because where else would a bear go? That makes sense. Now, this quickly turns into the girl kind of running ahead of him. And he's following her, telling her to slow down. But she is clearly, like, you know, trying to get somewhere. And we find out where it is because she leads him right back to the villagers. And it turns out they're waiting for him. And when I say they're waiting for him, I mean they've been waiting for him all along. See, they do want to sacrifice someone to uh, ensure a good harvest, but they don't want to sacrifice one of their own. They need a stranger, okay? But one that is connected by blood. It's all been a setup. In fact, when they start taking their masks off to reveal this, we see that his lady cop friend who visited him early in the movie is there, along with the mom and daughter from that station wagon. So this is one big mindfuck. This is what I saw and called about three quarters through and and wish I had have seen earlier, right? This is something I should have called sooner. Um, but I do like this idea. Like, I like the thought that this whole thing was a ploy. It really insults Nick Cage's intelligence, right? Because it suggests that the whole relationship with Willow, like the whole thing that happened, was a part of this ploy or process. It's interesting because the community knows that they're going to need these sacrifices in, like, years to come. Like, this whole thing took five years maybe to set up and happen and they have brought it all back where they found a police officer who they knew would come to try to figure out what had happened to a missing small girl and they have used him to create their sacrifice yeah she catfished him <laughs> yeah yeah this is like yeah this is sophisticated community catfishing <laughs> there you go so at this point, they're kind of surrounding him and advancing slowly. He pulls his gunner again and tries to shoot them, but when they went through his bags, they took out all the bullets. His gun's been empty the whole time. He didn't even know it. So now, hilariously, he tries to fight them off, lands a couple more karate kicks, but they swarm him, much like the bees of which their island depends for economic resources. He goes down. He's, he's throwing out these kicks. There's a couple good kicks. You get this shot from above where you see Nick Cage kicking people in the chest again, uh, which is so absurd. And as he's getting taken down, you hear him screaming, you bitches. Yeah, well, they hold him down. And this is where, again, we kind of switched over to the shocking alternate ending. They hold him down and they break his legs with like a giant hammer. They just fucking break them. It is like, it, it's, it would be gruesome if it wasn't so like laughably clearly not his legs. Yeah, it's... In the original version, we just hear the audio of this. We hear it kind of happening, but we don't see it. In the alternate version, 
they actually show him being held down and his legs smashed. And it is pretty gruesome. We get more Nick Cage yelling, which we know he's good at, right? His vocal range is excellent. And that's why they hire him for most of these jobs. <laughs> Apparently, right? yeah. And then after breaking his legs, they stick a giant bee cage on his head, which I'm like, is this irony? This is where we get the famous lines. You realize what's about to happen. Oh, no, not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! Oh, no, my eyes! <laughs> but they pour the bees down into this helmet thing and they're flying around his head and stinging him and the bees don't even look a little bit real. It's like so clearly CG. It's terrible. At one point, they arrange themselves in a beard on his face. I don't know why. Uh, I have seen the videos of real bees that do that to people. They're not stinging when they do that, but they will sort of go on to someone and form like that. But this part is absurd. This is a part of the alternate ending and... We watched the original and we're confused because that's the meme I knew of this movie. Right? Yeah, we were like, where the fuck is it? And, and that's when we realized we should watch the alternate one. Yeah. And it was interesting to see that sort of pain or punishment. But of course, they can't let him die here with the bee stings. What does the doctor do? Well, she comes along and says, we're going to do it your way this time and takes the EpiPen and stabs him in the neck with it, which you are not supposed to do. No, that is absolutely what you're not supposed to do. I've been trained many times on the use of an EpiPen and the thigh is the place where it's supposed to go. Well, uh, he gets it in the neck and it does keep him alive long enough for them to drag him to this giant wicker man. It's basically a giant statue of a man made out of wicker, which is big enough to put him inside, which they do. There's also some animals in there, I guess, to complete the sacrifice. And he's in there, and just as a final fuck you to Nick Cage, they send his own daughter to light it on fire. And she does. And basically the movie ends with these like anguished Nick Cage screams uh, and all the villagers chanting, the drone must die. The drone must die. And so we know that, of course, Nick is the drone bee, right? The one that's there just to impregnate uh, and then needs to go. It's re- it's interesting, right? I'm I'm kind of happy in a way that it ends this way and not with a rescue and happy ending uh, the way that so many movies do end. I thought there was actually going to be more Nick Cage screaming. We do get him kind of screaming over the burning to death, but I thought we would hear more of that as it ended. Yeah, He goes up real quickly. It's just over for him. Now, this is where the uh, alternate ending version ends, but in the theatrical release, it fades out, and it fades back into six months later. We see, of all people, James Franco in like a bar, and he's got a friend there, and they're kind of like looking for ladies, and they find a couple, but it's Willow and the fucking young girl who wanted out with Nick Cage, the one who asked him to take her with him. Uh, they're chatting him up a little bit. Willow takes the one guy to the bar to get drinks, and the young girl is talking to James Franco, asks him kind of where he's going after this. He says, my apartment, and she says, take me with you, much like she did to fucking Nick Cage, and that's like... Basically, how we have these like B sounds in the background. There's like yeah. sound of swarming trouble, and like that's it. And I'm like, that ending is super fucking weird. First of all, yeah. Like, do you think James Franco feels bad about being like <laughs> cut out of the alternate version, or is he yeah. like, yeah, this movie's better without me? <laughs> I don't know. We we sort of talked about the different endings. I preferred the alternate ending to the theatrical. I kind of enjoyed having it where I mean, you see the gruesomeness of his legs getting broken. You see the bees attacking him, and you get the meme scene. You also see some regret from the Willow character. In the alternate ending, I mean, she knows she has to do this for her community, but you don't think that it's possible for her to go out and try to do it again. And in the the theatrical release where she goes and tries to help the other character go lure and do it again for her community, I don't like that that is a possibility. Yeah, I mean, on some level, I get why they did it, because you're clearly trying to set up the sequel, Wicker Man 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> but uh, I, I also had the thought of, like, I was having a really hard time gauging everyone's ages, because earlier I thought the girl that he karate kicks into the wall was, like, 15, 16, but no, she's clearly 21-ish to be able to be in this bar with fucking James Franco. But then also, I'm like, I thought his ex fiance was, like, too old for to be in this bar, like, credibly, but I guess that's not the case. So I don't know how old anyone is. It's a weird ending, but I think, honestly, I think they were just, like, we can sequel this thing. It So I'm of two minds. I think either the theatrical release was there because people thought the ending in the other one was too gruesome. 
they didn't like the bee set, the bees and the smashing of the legs because they did include most of the sound in that, but they didn't show it. Or you're right, it is definitely trying to set up the ability to go for another one. Well, we even find out James Franco says he recently graduated from the police academy, so I just like to help people. So you can just see they're just going to sucker him in all over again. Perfect connection. I I hope they make that. That's what I want now. I want James <laughs> Franco to come back. And oh, I want there to be a. Oh, actually, James Franco. I was going to say I don't think James yeah. Franco is coming back. Yeah, right I don't now. want James Franco to come back. Yeah. I want somebody else to come back and portray his character in another movie there you go wicker man too let's make that happen (laughs) you heard it here first hollywood let's get that one off the ground so this is it we've reached the point now where we rate the movie the way this works we rate it on a scale of one to ten we do it twice one to ten for how bad it is one to ten for how enjoyable it is and the goal is to find a movie that is 10 out of 10 on both scales which we successfully did last week with the human tornado i gave it the second ever Crit 20. 20. (laughs) Nice. I'm going to go first for how bad this movie is. I have to be honest, in a weird way, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Because again, this is on so many of those bad movie lists and stuff. And as I was watching it, I was like, okay, like Nick Cage is ridiculous. Um, Some parts of the plot, like the, some of the choices they've made to diverge from the original don't really make sense. The fucking original is weird as shit too, but like, they've kind of taken even some weirder directions. All the like Nick Cage flashbacks were very unnecessary. He keeps flashing back at different times. This like crash with the truck and the car. And every time it's a little bit different. But I, I don't know. I was expecting something really, really bad. And I guess maybe because my expectations were so not high, I guess low. It wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was going to be. Like, it's pretty bad. Um, the shout acting, actually most of the acting. Uh, I I can't give it a 10, but I'm kind of just shooting from the hip here. I'm not even sure it's a 9. I'm going to give this an 8. That was my first instinct. Okay. I agree. I think it's an 8 bad. I came in with really low expectations. It's a Nick Cage movie. The acting was bad. The Nick Cage yelling was bad. There was a lot of absurd moments, especially in the last quarter of the movie, right? They started to go there. Yeah. But the general idea was pretty cool. I'd be really interested to see the original and or even read the book that sort of leads to this idea. The bad is definitely based on the acting and the sort of kicking in action at the end. But I think eight is fair. Um, I, I was leaning between a seven and eight, and I'm good to say an eight. Oh, my God. You almost went as low as a seven. I That's crazy. as low as a seven, which is pretty incredible for our podcast, right? But uh, I, I'm going to stick with the eight, too. Okay, but how enjoyable on a scale of one to ten did you find this movie? I liked it. <laughs> uh, shockingly, um, I was pretty drawn into the story. I mean, you would think Nick Cage's acting would throw me off, but I liked the plot. I liked the different directions they're throwing in. I liked the sort of red herrings and the other things that were popping up. I was invested. I wanted to see whether they were going to find the kid and save it. It became clear or it started to become clear as we went through it what was going to happen. And so that takes away a little bit from it. Um, but my first instinct on my enjoyability rating is an eight. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's really <laughs> high for me. I Not as high as I've given to some other movies, but I think my high, my highest, oh no, my highest enjoyability is a 10, but yeah. there's only been one of those, I That's think. That's true. Yeah. And I've given, I've given a couple nines, but eight's pretty high for me. I actually That's enjoyed this high. movie and I would like to see the other one and I would like to read the book. So this is why my number for this is going to be lower because I have seen the original and like, first of all. This remake was completely unnecessary. I agree with that. There is no reason to make this at all, other than someone's like, we can make money by remaking The Wicker Man. Originally, they had put the name of the director of the first one in all the promotional videos, and then he saw a pre-screening of it and made them remove it. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, the thing is, I think, again, I'm kind of... I I said I was going to be lower than you. I'm going to give it a seven. I'm not going to go much lower than you because, like, the thing is, it's Nick Cage. He's doing his Nick Cage shout-outing thing. It's ridiculous. So I was kind of, like... I was enjoying enjoying that. I was laughing at that. But, again, like, I think my expectations coming in... In this case, they were kind of high. I'm like, this is going to be fucking batshit, like, ridiculous crazy. And it wasn't quite that. Like, there were long stretches where... Even at one point, you were just like, I'm pretty into this right now. Like, it was not... There were not quite the ridiculous ones. As it goes along, he gets more and more manic. And this is where... Where it ratchets up like so i would i would say it finished strong for me but again totally unnecessary i can't recommend this in good conscience to anybody <laughs> watch the original the original is a classic but no this one uh it's kind of a piece of shit so i'm giving it a seven <laughs> it's not a great movie i'm not upset that i watched it and saw it once would i watch it again like most of my other ones probably not I like the idea that it was a female centric society and to see what they what they did. I wish 
I don't know. I wish that they followed less the idea that they were guided by a sort of spiritual entity. I wish they had more sort of choice in the way that they acted. Because I feel like I'd like to see more movies or stories that go that way. But I'm not upset at all that we watched it. I think it was a fun one for our finale. Okay, and are you upset at all that we tried this beer? Uh, goodness, no. Honey Browns, we called them before our gateway beer. Yeah. I finished mine within 15 minutes of the start of this podcast. I downed it. It was delicious. What I liked most about it was its smoky flavor. I think they do a really good job of imparting smoke into this beer. And I've drinking quite a bit of Royal City beers. We visited once together as a part of a bachelor party. It's in Guelph, Ontario. Um, they don't have a huge uh, like place for you to go and drink beers. They don't have a patio or anything like that, but you can always hop in. They do brewery tours. I think it's been closed through the pandemic, but will be open again soon, I hope. Uh, they have a lot of good beers, though. I remember their hibiscus saison, maybe, as the one that sticks out most to me. Okay. Um, I like this, too. Uh, I thought... What I liked about this, actually, is it was not too sweet. Yeah. I think the smoke balances the sweet quite well. Oh, a ton. And we've yeah. had, we've had, we mentioned we've had a few honey browns already this season, and a couple of them came on real strong with the honey, mm. which, like, for me, a sweet beer is like a recipe for a hangover. <laughs> and I, like, I feel pretty good after this. I'm like, you know what? We had a couple while we were watching it, had this one right now. I feel good about this. I, I would project my hangover probability to be quite low because it is more that smokiness and it's, it's a good flavor, and you do still get that honey. But it's not the it's not fucking the driving force, which I really appreciated. So I thought this was good. I will check out uh, some more Royal City beers for sure. But yeah, man, the fucking smoked honey, very very tasty. That's a good idea. That's a good point too, right? If we were drinking mead, uh, we would be hungover. Oh for my sure. god, dude! I mean, I still think maybe we try to work that in in an episode. I think people would find that hilarious. I think maybe beer cocktails might be something we try to figure out in the future as well. Well, you know what? This is the thing we have. This is our last episode of our first season. And we want to thank anyone who's listened at any point this season or if you're just checking us out right now. But we have a lot of ideas, things we want to do for the second season. So kind of just kind of stay tuned for those. And as we go through the summer, please, you know, keep following us. Check us out on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at the BMB podcast. There'll be stuff on there for you to check out. So if you haven't already, please follow us on there. Uh, If you want to send us suggestions for beers or for movies or for things that we could be doing on the podcast, slide into those DMs on our social media or send us an email at thebnbpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we've got a couple requests that we got this season that we're hoping to be able to work in the second season. So if you sent us a request and we didn't get to it yet, we're working on it. Don't worry. We just kind of ran out of time. Here are some things. You know, it's tough to find beer pairings sometimes. Either way, that's going to do it for this week and for season one. We thank you so much for listening. I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. I want to say thank you to Cooper for uh, starting this up and for doing all the hard work on the editing as we went through Oh, this. no, no. You, As anyone will tell you, you are the one who drives this podcast. <laughs> You're the driving force. Well, thank you, Mr. Benier. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you. I want to give you a shout out right now. There you go. So that's it. Check us out over the summer, and we will see you on the next season of Bad Movies and Beer. Keep it buzzy. Be careful what you search for.